Next Chapter Podcasts. From Wondery, this is Black History for Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most <laughs> people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, Mom. exactly. There are so many stories of Black History that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less... In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to every episode of Black History for Real early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. We all were shaped, our landscapes were shaped by the redlining maps. Urban renewal, we call it urban removal back in the day, but urban renewal really blew apart that tight-knit community uh, called Brooklyn. And so in many ways, the federal government does and has, and the interstate's part of this, underwrites Southern Jim Crow society in a way. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Our New South, a podcast series presented by the Levine Museum of New South in Charlotte, North Carolina, with the generous support from the Knight Foundation. Hi, my name is Dr. Robert Green II, coming to you from Clafton University, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin Blackstone, coming to you from College Park, Maryland. And we truly thank you for tuning in today. Over the course of this series, we'll be discussing the concept of the New South and how it's evolved with academics, activists, and creatives. We'll investigate the South, asking questions of our expert guests in key areas like socioeconomic mobility, voting rights, and discriminatory practices that have shaped the South over the decades leading up to today's challenges. We thank you for joining us on this journey and ask that you please tell your friends and family about us. Follow the show, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Okay, let's get to today's episode of the show. Today's episode of Our New South focuses on discriminatory policies that have been enacted in the South since Reconstruction that have greatly diminished the social and economic mobility of marginalized people and indigenous people for decades, even as we speak today. We will discuss how state and government actions like urban renewal and the construction of the national interstate highway system led to the displacement of tens of thousands of mostly black and brown people across the South, and how gentrification today has led to the further destruction of many of the South's most historic black communities. Before we get to our guests, I would like to ask Dr. Robert Green to provide us with some brief insight on discriminatory policies in the South. The South has struggled to deal with what is arguably its best-known quality, the history of enslavement and Jim Crow segregation that has defined what the American South means to many in this nation and around the world. Since the end of the Jim Crow era, 
Southern cities and states have struggled to find ways to address the legacy of slavery, segregation, and other discriminatory policies that once governed the South. Our New South deals with many of these legacies. But for today's episode, we want to focus on three, redlining, urban renewal, and federal highway policy. The practice of redlining, begun by the federal government as part of the New Deal in the 1930s, was an attempt to increase home ownership among white Americans. Despite housing shortages across the nation, it was decided that subsidizing the building of homes for white Americans was the best way forward. However, neighborhoods with large black populations were colored red by the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, leading to the phrase redlining. This hurt efforts by black families to eventually buy homes as homes in redlined districts were not insured by the FHA. Meanwhile, areas seeing a rapid increase in housing units before and after World War II were largely open only to white families. This created generations of wealth and prosperity for white families while dashing the hopes and desires of black families to do the same. Meanwhile, the practice of urban renewal also disproportionately targeted black Americans in the areas in which they lived across the nation. The Housing Act of 1949 and the later Housing Act of 1954 set aside federal loans to cities to clear slum areas, while also setting aside land to be used for both private housing developers and for public housing projects as well. Such urban renewal impacted poor Americans in major cities the most, often those who lost their former homes for Black Americans. So often, in fact, were Black Americans targeted by urban renewal that, for some activists, they adopted a term coined by James Baldwin for urban renewal, quote, Negro removal, end quote. Discrimination's long and vexing legacy in the South is felt in other, more subtle ways as well. As we shall discuss on today's episode, the building of the interstate highway system in the South meant the destruction of numerous historically Black areas of Southern cities. These areas, due to lack of Black voting power in the Deep South, before the implementation and enforcement of the 1965 Voting Rights Act meant that they were often seen as politically expendable. All of these problems were national, but due to the long legacy of discrimination in the South, they shaped the face of major Southern cities such as Atlanta, Charlotte, Birmingham, Memphis, Nashville, and many others. The New South of the 21st century is one whose landscape was shaped by the New Deal and Great Society era programs that were purported to help cities, but instead complicated their racial and class dynamics even further. However, Southern cities and states are attempting various methods to combat these problems. The University of North Carolina Charlotte has created an urban institute dedicated to crunching the numbers and figuring out how best to combat Charlotte's problems of urban growth and sprawl. More remains to be done across the South. The New South idea of the 21st century is, in many ways, built on the premise that the legacy of the South's myriad forms of discrimination must finally and forcefully be dealt with to ensure that the New South is new for everyone and not just a privileged few. Our first guest today is Dr. Lori Thomas executive director of the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute, an applied research and community outreach center that seeks solutions to complex social, economic, and environmental challenges facing communities in Charlotte and across North Carolina. Lori is a lifelong Southerner who has dedicated much of her career working on solutions to end chronic homelessness in the South. 
Our New South welcomes Dr. Lori Thomas. So thanks so much for um, for doing this. Yeah. This is a, a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> so hopefully we'll make it enjoyable for you. But if you could introduce yourself to our audience, that'd be that'd be great. Where are you from and and what do you do and and how did you get to doing it? Yeah, yeah. Well, my name is Lori Thomas um, and I am living in Charlotte now. I've been here for 15 years. Before Charlotte, I was in Richmond, Virginia for 13, 14 years. And then a short stay in Louisville, Kentucky, but East Tennessee um, is home. And so grew up a little bit in Knoxville and then in seventh grade moved to my family farm, um, my great-grandfather's farm in the mountains. So um, yeah, wow. so you are a southerner. I, I am. I have made a, a round trip around the south. Yes, I sure have. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I'm on those roads a lot. Um, so yeah, so now I am the director of the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute and the Charlotte Regional Data Trust. I've been here for about five years in the director role for of the Urban Institute for two in the director role of the Charlotte Regional Data Trust for five. And before that, for 10 years, I was a faculty member, and I'm still technically a faculty member in social work and um, macro social worker by training, but also with a background in religious studies and theological studies. So everything. Yeah. So <laughs> a little bit of everything. So we've talked to people who are immigrants. Mm -hmm. We've talked to people who have moved to the South. We'll be talking to people who are from the South and have moved elsewhere. And one of the things that's interesting is what their perception of the South is, hmm. which kind of helps form what we're going to talk about in terms of the New South. So given that you are a Southerner and you have not left, what is the South to you? Yeah, boy, uh, it's complicated. <laughs> That's what the South is to me. I mean, it's home, right? So, um, and Appalachia um, is also home to me. So wow. there's okay. some interesting layers to that for me. I don't, you know, like you don't know the water that you're swimming in <laughs> until you start to, to develop some awareness of being from the South. And it was interesting for me to move from East Tennessee to Louisville, Kentucky, to Richmond, and then eventually to um, here to Charlotte and to recognize the different tenors of the South, but then to also see some commonalities and some common struggles, some common oppression and some common opportunity. And so, you know, I think it's always complicated to me. It's the place I love. You talk about food. I know Southern food. You know, I grew up and, you know, cornbread with sugar is cake. And so, um, you know, I... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We're going to have to debate on the cornbread now. <laughs> I mean, there's not an ounce of sugar that goes into my family cornbread. Um, but, but so there's those pieces that I so love. And, and growing up in, um, you know, for a time in suburban Knoxville, but then from seventh grade through high school on my grandparents' farm, there's also this kind of small community, um, small, very connected by relatives community that I also had the chance to experience. And then in my adulthood, I've been in urban centers. And so having seen kind of all of that and really not understanding the complexity, you know, early on that I've come to understand and really realize how it was shaping me as a white person in Appalachia, as much as it was shaping, you know, black folks and people of color 
in urban centers and, and, you know, trying to come to grips with all of that. And so it's complicated. It's beautiful and it's troubled. <laughs> and so your work is trying to figure out what those problems may be and come up with some remedies to those problems. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. More complicated, but. Well, I mean, I think that's definitely a part of it. Like I do community engaged, community facing research. My academic career has been that. And so that's always about, um, you know, figuring out the information that change agents in the community need to make good decisions, to drive action. And so that's definitely always a, a part of it, I would say. Right. And I certainly want to come back to that point about being a, a public facing scholar and, and the work that you do in that regard. Mm. But before we get to that, I do want to ask you a bit about uh, telling our audience a bit about some of the changing demographics in Charlotte, especially as it relates to the issue of gentrification and how mm -hmm. neighborhoods in Charlotte are, are changing. In particular, what we're seeing right now is that uh, historic black Charlotte is facing some issues with gentrification being kind of pushed out of those neighborhoods. So could you tell our audience, especially those who are not from Charlotte, about some of the challenges facing Charlotte and gentrification, especially with the Black community in Charlotte? Yeah, you know, I think I, I'd address that from both a, a kind of a policy angle, that there's a reason that we got here. <laughs> but then really kind of the challenge of gentrification um, is, and, I, you know, I think it's really important to distinguish between gentrification and displacement, right? So there's some things that are happening in communities um, on the West End that community members had have been asking for, they have been advocating for, for themselves, the Black community in Charlotte. Um, but it's when, you know, bringing in um, revitalization and new development, when that begins to push out and displace either housing or culturally displaced communities, you know, that is a different kind of story. And we are seeing that, right? We are, and particularly, in, you know, in my world and my academic and, and research home around homelessness, that certainly has a direct impact on that. But, you know, to me, that is, um, it is certainly happening. We can't turn an eye toward it. We have a larger um, housing affordability issue that gentrification exacerbates. Um, it's not the only issue, but it's important to understand, you know, how that housing shortage that we're having particularly plays out on these Black, traditionally Black um, urban neighborhoods. You know, one of the themes to our podcast is the New South. And so to hear what you just said and what you're trying to balance, um, how much has displacement and even gentrification played in what we now call the New South? And how can you judge that? Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Hmm. Well, I think the outcomes are what you look at to judge it. <laughs> like who's been displaced, right? Those Has it fallen on the same people over and over again? That's how that's I mean, that has to be a metric along with all the other metrics we look at for prosperity and success. Right. Who has it consistently fallen on to bear the brunt <laughs> of economic prosperity? Um, so to me, that's one of the pieces. Um, 
You know, I, I think part of what shapes the New South is also what shapes the United States. And I honestly think what we have to, we're talking about the New South, but I don't want to just, can't let the other parts of the country off the hook here. We all were shaped, our landscapes were shaped by the redlining maps of the 30s and 40s. So Homer Hoyt was eventually a, a part of um, the early infrastructure of developing housing policy in this country. And his dissertation was really about risk, right? So all this early redlining stuff came out of Homer Hoyt's dissertation. A lot of it did. And there's a slide from his dissertation, and I'm actually looking at it now, and it um, it was a... It, it lists the most and least favorite favorable races and ethnicities literally from 1 to 10 to guide lender and insurance decision making right i would show that to my students and people are like really and so of course one number 1 um, is english german scotch irish scandinavians right and so this is the guiding of our decisions around early home ownership and we know you know from the work around um, i can't think of his name right now um the color of law um richard ross ross rothstein i think um that you know over 95 percent of the of the original mortgages were guided and approved for white people through this kind of decision-making tool, right? So this dissertation, this academic um, artifact <laughs> had so much to do with how he made that decision. Um, of course, at, and then I think number two is Northern Italians. Number, But if you look at the, uh, the tail end of the list, um, eight, nine, and 10, it's Southern Italians, Negroes, and Mexicans, right? And so that literally shaped our maps. And I think um, it's important when we think about urban renewal, which started the replacement, that layered on top of the map, uh, you know, those redlining maps. And I'm sure you've talked about redlining on this before because it's really hard to escape the realities of redlining. Right. I think that's a really good point. Um, I cannot help but think about um, a film I showed to my students earlier this week. It was of Jesse Jackson speaking at the 1972 Gary Convention, where he mentions Mm -hmm. that now Black Americans can move anywhere in the country, but we can't pay the note, alluding to that redlining issue and gentrification, right? And I want to bring this to to your own personal work in Charlotte. Um, you, you've been devoted to to not only talking about gentrification, but in particular the problem of homelessness in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. So, could you talk a bit about how those two issues are linked together, and talk a bit to our audience about how this these issues are particularly acute in Charlotte right now? I've been a macro social worker um, my career, which means you know working for change and programs and systems. But honestly, as I got started in that work, I was thinking about programs to help people still an intervention on a person. And, you know, what I have learned um, very clearly to me is, you know, there are individual issues that make people at risk for homelessness. Mental health is one. Poverty is another. That is not our overwhelming cause of homelessness. Our overwhelming cause of homelessness is housing affordability. I absolutely believe that the scale at which we have homelessness is because of housing affordability. And, you know, just to recommend a book that came out in the last 
I think it was last year for your readers, there's a book called Homelessness is a Housing Problem. It is a great, great book that really dismantles the rationale with data behind homelessness and all these other reasons that people say people are homeless. And because of the difficulties we have and the time it takes to build affordable housing to ensure that gentrification doesn't lead to displacement, gentrification is actually exacerbating affordable housing, um, the affordable housing shortage, right? And so that is what's connected to homelessness. And we're seeing it in Charlotte, like we're seeing it around the country, that as our affordable housing declines, our homelessness rate has gone up. And our homelessness rate has um, has increased since before the pandemic until now. And I think there's a couple of stats that, and maybe a couple of anecdotes as well, that, that really stick out to me. Um, one is the statistic that in 2011, the share of apartments that rented for under $800 a month in Charlotte was 45% of the rental properties. 45% of the rental properties in 2011. Now, this is right after the recession, but 45% of those properties rented for under $800 a month. By 10 years later, by 2021, that had fallen to 13%. 13% of our rental stock rents for under $800 a month. Well, thank you so much for your time. This is uh, this is fascinating. For millions of Black Southerners, ideas of redlining and urban renewal were not just concepts to be found in a textbook or arguments to be put forward by politicians, but were real laws and policies that directly impacted their lives. Arthur Griffin is a Mecklenburg County commissioner and spent his youth in Brooklyn an African-American neighborhood in Charlotte. Once a thriving community and center of Black life in the city, Brooklyn was raised during Charlotte's first phase of urban renewal in the 1960s and 70s. These policies displaced residents, businesses, and institutions as they demolished the built landscape. Mr. Griffin shared the story of Brooklyn with us and the impact of urban renewal that continues to shape the lives of people across the South and around the country, even in 2024. With respect to role models, whether they were preachers, uh, whether it was shop owners, there was always this notion, and, and I, sometimes I use uh, in speeches, I, I would say to folks, there was never a billboard on the streets, you know, or marketing on the radio or TV, but there was always a notion that, that the, the conversations were, uh, do your parents good? And we had, as a result of that, just uh, tons of, of, of role models, people who were entertainers, people that like, we had our own James Brown, for example, in the neighborhood. And uh, whenever there were community events, uh, that individual would always be performing and singing. Likewise, different uh, musical groups. Uh, uh, one of our high school, um, not classmate, but someone that graduated from the same high school I went to, uh, was just repatriated. Uh, it was a national story here in Charlotte just a week or two ago on December the 6th, where we... Um, recognized and paid honor to uh, Lieutenant Airman. So if, if you can imagine growing up in that spot called Brooklyn and 
and and going to the public school and and having the kind of environment that I described earlier, uh, we believe there was nothing we couldn't do. How much has Black Charlotte been impacted first by urban renewal in the 60s and 70s, urban removal, and more recently gentrification in Charlotte? Because you're talking about what the Black community was like in Charlotte when you were growing up and coming of age. How has it changed since then, in your opinion? If you can imagine uh, an EF5 tornado going through uh, rural Augusta, or, or, or Charlotte, North Carolina, urban renewal, renew, we call it urban removal back in the day, but urban renewal uh, really blew apart that tight-knit community uh, called Brooklyn. It scattered churches from the African-American experience. You know, churches were like, that's the hub. You, you go there for political rallies. You go there for for funerals, for birthdays, you know, all the churches were scattered throughout uh, Charlotte as a result of, of urban renewal. Uh, a lot of the shops were bought out and never uh, had enough capital to start up across town, et cetera. So uh, from my, this is Arthur Griffin's uh, observation. I'm sure others have different observations, but I think we're still suffering from that breakup because the close-knitness in terms of, of shops and role models are now scattered throughout the entire county, and it has taken generations to try to recover uh, from, from those experiences. So that's the bitterness upon your return, I guess, not the, not the sweetness. Yeah, that, that clearly is the bitterness. My old high school uh, was closed down in 1969. Uh, we have one historic uh, African-American high school that still exists today in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's West Charlotte High School. Uh, that is the only existing historically black high school that's still left out of 1.12 million residents so that, that people can have a connection with. As you asked me earlier about urban renewal, it really broke that kind of connectedness up and we're trying to find, find our way now. Our next guest is Dr. Maurice Robinson, a professor of history at Alabama State University in Montgomery, Alabama. Maurice is a native of Montgomery and has done extensive research on the creation of the National Interstate Highway System and its impact on minority communities across the South. Our new South. Welcome, Dr. Maurice Robinson. All right. I have with me today Dr. Maurice Robinson of Alabama State University, uh, who is also a good friend and colleague of mine from the University of South Carolina's Graduate Program in History. Dr. Robinson, welcome to our program. Hey, thank you so much, Robert. Great to see you. Yeah, when I was uh, first at USC, you were the first guy to give me a, a tour of the campus, uh, just being as hospitable as you always were. So thank you for that. Good to see you. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you for the kind words. And, and Maurice, could you tell the audience a bit about your background, um, your research in particular, and what you're up to these days? From Montgomery, Alabama, born in Germany. I'm the um, son of two Air Force uh, officers. And so 
I'm an Air Force brat, and so we happened to go from Europe to Montgomery. My dad happens to be from Montgomery. It worked out. My grandmother on his side is from. Um, and so I grew up there, graduated high school from Robert E. Lee High School. Got to love those <laughs> duality of issues of Confederacy and civil rights in the same place. It never stops, right? Went to Auburn for undergrad, uh, actually did engineering for three years and a lot of fun, great, hard debates with my advisor and my parents and myself. I uh, last, my junior year went to history, which didn't make sense, but my dad is a Georgia Tech engineer graduate. And so, well, I never knew any historians personally. So I knew I was like a career field versus just being a PE coach, I guess, social studies. I lucked out at a great historical uh, faculty at, at Auburn. Then I graduated, went to D.C. to work for the House of Representatives historian, Robert Remedy. He's passed away now. And that's what really got me into wanting to go to grad school. I thought I want to go to law school at that point. And uh, working on some research at the House in 09 during the Obamacare debates was interesting. It really got me galvanized. So let's really do research at Library of Congress at the Madison Building, right? The tunnel between the two places. And um, decided to go to grad school. Back to Auburn for a master's. And that's where I first did my really serious investigation of interstate highway development. And that became because I'm from Montgomery. And so where my dad grew up is on the west side of Montgomery, where most of the interstates went through black neighborhoods. And so just hearing my family over holidays over all my life about events that you knew about or people's houses that were there or schools that used to be there, or businesses that were there that aren't there anymore, that kind of collective nostalgia. I just never knew why or how that happened. And you know, that allowed me to do it. So I did a thesis on that. And then I was deciding, do I want to take it further for a Ph.D.? And then that's when I really got into the really heavy weeds of context, the policies, the New Deal era, how all this kind of ties together for infrastructure building in the South. And I went to University of South Carolina with Pat Sullivan as my advisor. And I met you and others, had some great debates in our seminars and just interacting and learning. And Dr. Donaldson is very important as well. Uh, Kent Germany, all those folks, the civil rights and African-American history historians. Todd Shaw is a big one as well, uh, political science. And so all those people, those kind of ideas help me kind of figure out that this could be a really cool project. That's my very long-winded intro about how I got where I am. That's my background. No, thank you so much for that. And uh, Maurice, I think it's pretty safe to say that you are very much a child of the South. Before we dive into your research and your work, could you talk a bit about what that means to you, being from the South? Uh, as a Southerner, that's one of the first grad seminars that I had is what is the South, right? It can be anything you want. It can be Chick-fil-A. It can be football. It can be SEC. It can be fried chicken. It can be music. But for me personally, uh, the South is, I wouldn't say, it's about duality, I think, in a lot of ways. That can be race. It can be class. It can be geog geographical difference of like hot weather down South, cold weather North. It can be economic. And that's kind of what I see mostly as I get older is the difference. It could be the idea of, is education a privilege or a right? Like those are the breakdowns is that kind of tension between uh, privilege and um, a right. And I think that's what, for me, undergirds Southerness. And that's a perfect segue to talking a bit about the meat of today's episode, which is infrastructure in the South and how it, A, has been historically influenced by Southern history and B, how it itself has influenced Southern history. So you made mention of the interstate highway system and, and how it's, you know, influenced, of course, cities like Montgomery and the like. How did the federal government go about building the interstate highway system? The idea to have this connected network is a very old concept in U.S. history. It's not like it all of a sudden started in the 50s. 
However, it gets its funding with Eisenhower, but not just him, but also Congress and General Al Gore is a really big senior, actually, is a really from Tennessee is a really big uh, help of that. A lot of Southern Democrats actually lifted a lot of heavy, heavy um, oratory and funding to get it done in the 50s because the big deal was how do you pay for this? Everybody likes this. Eisenhower and a lot of his advisors, a lot of Republicans realized that if we make a national argument or rhetorical argument about making a military thing as well, that will just help it make guide it through Congress a little easier. That wasn't really the reason why, but rhetorically that helps pass the legislation in both houses. But it's actually how do you get the funding? That's what really was what the 56 Act does is there are other federal rate highway acts, but this one is what finally says, you know what, 90-10 split. And how do you get the federal government to pay the bulk of it? Because you know how Southern southern states are very conservative budget-wise, right? We don't want to be on the hook for things in the future when we don't know our money is always going to have, be there 20 years later to do these things that we are contractually having to help avoid, right? So that's kind of the whole point is how do you pay for it? And that's what the Fifty Six Act actually finally made everyone happy about, at least the majority of, of people happy about politicians, about how to pay for it, the bulk being federal government. And so in many ways... The federal government does and has, and the interstate's part of this, underwrite Southern Jim Crow society in a way. In some cases, the states just don't have the money to do these things, to build certain institutions or certain infrastructures. And so they have to have federal funding to do this. And so in many ways, it's federal tax dollars keeping Jim Crow alive as a societal structural thing, right? That makes sense. All the things that kind of uphold the pillars of society, education or railroads, all these things, even uh, public television in a way, right? Like those aren't always paid through state dollars or federal. The point is like all these things are federally funded. And so um, there is a long legacy of Southern politicians understanding that they can't pay for this directly, but as a right of theirs, they can have final say-so about where these things go as placement in the local communities. And that's where they get control over last siting of these projects, whether it be TVA power lines, or whether it be highways or anything else that's or ports, even sometimes. That's during World War II or World War One. Right, right. And as a as a quick follow up, talk a bit about how the politics of Alabama in the 1950s and 60s are influencing how the highway system is built in that state. Hey, good question. Actually, that's what I study. I guess Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee, actually, <laughs> but the South in general. I'm really good at all those. But in Alabama, though, it's very unique because it's just bad timing. That's just unlucky. Very unlucky because. You have Brown v. Board, which is decided in 54. That's a collection of cases. We're from South Carolina. At least we went there. So we know that there are other cases that are part of it. I can't say that without saying that, right? Around, one of those was a bus, right? School bus. Transportation, right? The one in South Carolina, Orangeburg, at least, right? Right. Briggs v. Elliott. So in Alabama, you have a upstart that his name is Samuel Englehart. He is a plantation owner. Even in that time, he really is that. And Macon County. This is where Tuskegee is. Um, he's also the state president of the White Citizen Council, the genteel way to be racist, right, in the South. Uh, he's also the local president of, the, of that associate of that chapter. And he's also a state senator. And so I think he is Wallace before Wallace, actually. People don't know who he is, but he actually is Wallace before Wallace. And I said it because he runs for the gubernatorial election in 58. And the primary, and he's also part of the Democratic Party state party as well. Like He's really like that guy. He's going to be that person. And here's how it works out in Alabama and most places, right? The primary. You win the primary, you win the election. He went up against a guy named John Patterson, a lawyer, 
Patterson wins the primary in a way. And so as a as a consolation backroom deal kind of thing, if Englehart's supporters support Patterson, Patterson would give him the next highest paying state job in Alabama, which was highway director. And that's how he became the director right in the middle of the last rounds of finalizing the interstate routes. And so he sees the bus boycott in Montgomery with Rosa Parks and Ian Nixon and King and Abernathy as one of the biggest embarrassments to all Southerners ever. And he makes it like his personal job to pay back those folks. Uh, but I, I want to ask as, as a follow-up to that, um, of course, you're, you're quite familiar with the work of Raymond Mull, the geographer, historian who wrote extensively about infrastructure in the South. And, and in Mull's report uh, called The Interstate in the Cities, Highways, Housing, and the Freeway Revolt, uh, he writes about how Southern cities like Birmingham, Nashville, Miami, many others, how they were intentional in, in choosing to really separate black and white neighborhoods via highway construction. Now, my question to you is, why do you think cities in the South were so deliberate in those choices, uh, number one? And number two, again, you're you're a lifelong Southerner. You've seen this both as a historian, as a citizen of the South. What do you think has been the long-term impact of this highway construction through these neighborhoods? Oh, that, that's a good question. A very long question to answer, but a good question. It's probably one of the best ones in terms of like, we're still dealing with that as research, right? The impact. But for me personally, I'll say that Raymond Mole did, and his workers and his students did a lot of great work uh, to just show that these things are not accidents at all. Like there's a pattern, whether these are different states or cities, for some reason, they're all following the same or they're affecting the same type of communities. No matter it's New Orleans, Dallas, Houston, Nashville, Little Rock, they're all even Atlanta, right? Or Macon County. I mean, sorry, Macon, Georgia, which I didn't know until doing further research, right? They're all doing the same thing. Orlando is a big one as well. They're all doing the same stuff, guys. So you have highway development that is tied to urban blight, urban renewal programs, which are also federal programs. And so it's almost like if you're a booster or chamber of commerce, you can now use, again, federal dollars without having to pay the full weight from your own budget to re-engineer or re-spatialize your urban center that you see as black, as you see as being blighted, just crime-ridden, which is not always true, but that's just the perception by a lot of white politicians or bureaucrats, right? Which is why Englehart's important is that they're targeting black businesses or areas that are supporting the civil rights movement. And so that's where you have like your black business districts that are very vibrant, that have black professors, teachers, doctors, nurses, middle class. In many places, those are the places that are being identified as spots because they help support the civil rights movement. So Atlanta is an older concept, but I-20 is something that was built a little earlier, but it's still a federal project because right by Spelman, but AAU Center, right? Nashville, uh, Fisk, Tennessee State, that goes right between both of those on purpose. It's a whole thing. Uh, in Montgomery, uh, ASU, that all those professors that helped the boycott were actually ASU professors at Alabama State University. Abernathy works at is a professor at ASU. Uh, Joanne Robinson is a professor at ASU. I mean, that's one of the reasons. So, like, their neighborhoods are not blighted. They're not part of slum clinics at all, but they're impacted. Yeah, I think that's a great point, especially when we think about how we define the South. And I think for many folks, including yourself, a major part of defining what the South is, is the idea of community. 
uh, of strong, close knit, well knit communities that are that are together. And yet, what you're pointing out here is that one of the casualties of the interstate highway system and the battles of the civil rights movement is that sense of community in many of these black enclaves in various southern cities throughout the region. And this relates to something that you wrote. You, you once wrote a while back that quote racialized social engineering and urban planning would continue to shape urban communities across the South, end quote. Now, you've already talked a bit about this, but could you further elaborate on your thoughts about that quote today? And and do you think that they're still shaping urban communities even in 2023? Uh, The answer is yes, they still operate. Just maybe not as overtly. I think you have better checks and balances, but sometimes not at all. And so... When I say racialized social engineering, you don't have to explicitly, this is one of the disagreements with a professor that you know very well, uh, that well, where's the, where is the smoking gun when you try to say these things? Like, I don't mm-hmm. see that this guy said that he hates black people. He put a highway through it. Well, okay, yeah. It may not be that easy, but that doesn't mean that you can't use structural theories or frameworks to show uh, maps or to make a co- make an observation that, Raymond Mole did, or like you don't have to like have a guy say he did this because they're black, but this is the impact of that disparate impact studies, right? This is what happened, though. To to wrap up our our conversation, I I know, and again, as historians, we are both quite leery of talking about the future. We're much more comfortable in the past or in archives or uh, in reading seminars. But you, you're currently at Alabama State. You've grew up in the South. You've seen the South change a lot during the course of your lifetime. When you hear the phrase, the New South, and you, you mentioned it earlier in, in, in regarding the late 19th century, the traditional term of that, that time period for Southern history, but when you hear the New South in a contemporary context, what does that term mean to you? What does the South today mean to you as a lifelong Southerner? Oh, you're right. I mean, it has different definitions. And so we're not going to use the Henry Grady uh, definition of a like, boosterism, right? But for me personally today, people I talk to, friends and uh, colleagues of our generation, I'm 38. So yeah, that's uh, where we're now. We're millennials. Yeah. Make sure all these new names now. Mm-hmm. Elder millennials, that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think what it is, is uh, for me personally, New South goes with reverse great migration in a way. I think it's re-blacking of the South a lot of economic terms. That's kind of how I see it today. I wouldn't use that term 20 years ago. I mean, I wouldn't use that definition 20 years ago or 30 years ago, but I think in the last 20 years or 10 years, you have people leaving the Midwest, the North, or even the West, they're migrating to, because Texas is a part, Florida, North Carolina's, and it's because of all these economic opportunities, not just weather, but all these domiciled headquarters are now spaces that people can live cheaper lives for the cost they would say in Detroit, Chicago, New York, Boston, right? I mean, that's how I see it. And so we had all those families four generations ago leave the South for better jobs and get away from racism, get away from lynching. They're going back down to be, I think, more connected with their roots mm-hmm. in some ways, not always, but in a lot of ways to be in more black spaces and also to live a cheaper life for what they think is a better life. And so, I think that explains a lot of why Southern cities are on the rise, like Nashville, Charlotte, Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, Austin, even, right? I mean, they're exploding for a reason. Uh, Maurice Robinson, thank you so much for joining us today for our program. I think this was a very enlightening conversation and 
will certainly, I hope, push a lot of our listeners to think a bit differently about how they think about cities in the South. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. In our closing reflections of today's podcast, we have a quote from Rue George Warren, a performance artist, researcher, and board member of the Catawba Nation, a native tribe that has existed in South Carolina for more than 5,000 years. Rue is featured on our New South podcast episode about environmental justice. So in, in the 30s and 40s, the United States created this new status called federal recognition, um, which was basically a way to formalize the relationship between the federal government and tribal nations. Um, Catawba Nation was one of the tribes that was um, federally recognized in that period. We submitted our constitution in the 40s, and that's how we got federally recognized. Um, but very quickly after that, um, by the 1950s, the United States has changed its policy once again to one of termination, um, which is their literal term for it, not, not my summary of it. Um, in which they would go into tribes and they would take a vote of just kind of whoever was around, um, not a representative vote at all. And uh, if if they got the votes they needed, then they would um, terminate the relationship between that tribe and the federal government. And so that's what happened to us in 1959. In the snap of a finger, we ceased to exist in the eyes of the federal government. Why this is important is because it was part of a bigger push by the United States since the 1800s to transform tribes from being sovereign political organizations um, into being racial minorities within the United States, right? Um, And this is part of the larger project of post-Civil War, Jim Crow, Black Codes, uh, immigration laws, all of these, these really racialized laws. And so in the South, the way that tribes are being dealt with is very similar to how other racial minorities were being dealt with, particularly black communities in the Southeast. You know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and nobody want to hear it, but it's like this the South got something to say. Our New South is brought to you by the Levine Museum of the New South in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks to the generous support of the Knight Foundation. Our New South is produced by Next Chapter Podcast. It's written and produced by Byron Hunter. The editor and sound designer is Kyle Murdoch. Executive producers are Jeremiah Tittle and Frankie Abbott. Our technical producer is Brian Douglas. With special thanks to Levine team members, Alexander Pinetes, Karen Sutton, and Cliff Whitfield. Please follow the show. Subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Learn more at ncpodcast.com forward slash Our New South and museumofthenewsouth.org. The South got something to say. Next Chapter Podcasts.